It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Civics, another Sunday morning. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am so delighted that you made it to class this morning. We are continuing our conversation about immigration here in the United States, all of the tentacles of all of the different policies and laws and organizations and the people that are affected, the communities that are affected by our broken immigration policies and law and what we should be doing about it because it does have a direct impact on your life, even if you believe it does not. And so joining us at the front of the class this morning, which I'm really excited about, took a little, you know, June had to do some extra work to get this person before the front of the class. So shout out to June for making this happen. But joining us at the front of the class at this time is Alan Orr. He's the president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and also founder of Orr Immigration Firm. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Yeah. And you've been, you, I mean, people are used to hearing your voice because here on Urban View, you've been on, you know, Karen and Clay and, you know, everybody. So they're used to the sound of your voice if they listen during the week. So I thank you for joining us here on Sunday Civic. So we're going to dive right in and start where we start with every guest by you sharing the story of your first civic action. Yeah. So I think my surf, I did, a, uh, it's always interesting to when I think about what civic means, because I did Head Start at Morehouse, I went to Morehouse undergrad, and I always feel like that's civic action helping children. But I think on, on this scale, my first civic action would actually be in the District of Columbia as a, as a first year law student. I made sure that Howard University was following the recycling rules of the District of Columbia so that we were recycling paper and aluminum and making sure that at all the different campus facilities that that recycling actually existed so that students could find it because we had so much waste that was just sort of going in the trash every day. Um, and I thought that it was super important because I was I was actually the, the president of the Environmental Law Society then at that time. And I just thought this waste winds up in black neighborhoods and then it poisons black kids. So we got to end the cycle. You know, I absolutely love that story because one, I'm always the living in New York City, right? As you mentioned, you understand how trash ends up in communities that are poor, under-resourced. And, you know, my kids now are so used to it that when they see people littering, it like they take personal offense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my daughter is in a car and someone literally just emptied an entire bag of food, like, like while they were driving, like in the street. And she was like, oh my God. God, <laughs> she was like, they're just contributing to the trash in our like neighborhood. She was so offended and even trying to, you know, do practices within our own home so we can do less waste and less reliance on like foil and, you know, plastic and things of that nature. But that is really recycling and addressing our waste is really a civic duty <laughs> as well because it contributes to our overall environment and our overall health of our community. And, you know, people just see it as a, a do-gooder thing yeah. and not that it's directly connected to our our communities and our well-being. So I, I absolutely love that story. Yeah. 
and, and if your children don't have the supplies that you threw them away years ago because they're buried in the ground, then you're also just throwing away resources. That's something the United States, you know, even in this topic when we talk about immigrants, it's something that we continually throw away or resources that we need. Yeah. Yeah. And just the um, way, you know, I watched a, I can't find it again because I wanted to tweet it. There was a story that I don't know if it was on PBS or something about an Asian country who recognizing all, you know, that they had too many people, they had too many places of dumping waste. And so they did an entire campaign to have people change their habits. And so now people, you know, they don't really use plastic as much. People bring their bags and containers to grocery stores, how pe people compost and, you know, rid things. And they, in the span of 10 years, were able to significantly reduce how much, you know, trash heaps or, you know, places that they have because they did a concerted effort by government and, you know, by the people participating to participate in this effort to reduce their waste. And I was like, see, we could do stuff like that. If people weren't like, they taking our jobs and they just the nanny state, and like a blah, blah, blah. It's just like, oh, we could be so much better, Alan. The power of the people are always the solution. That's why I love this show. It's all about the power of the people to make the final solution on all of these things. That's what really matters. Right, right. So let's get to this conversation immigration, because one of if you have ever trafficked like next door or community groups and thing message boards and things like that, conversation happens about immigrants. One of the common misconceptions people have is that apparently there's some line that people should enter in the quote right way to become a citizen in this country. For those of us who are not steeped in immigration policy, what is the process in, you know, or is there a general process of how someone becomes a citizen of this country? Right. So I think you should disavow yourself of the concept of there's a line, right? Because there's many different ways to become a citizen and there's many different ways that, that it becomes a function of what society needs, just like it does with any of the other races that were here, the way that we sort of amended the Constitution because we wanted to, or all those things, the way people are sort of brought in. It's a broader system. It's a legal question. So someone today may not have the documents, but in a couple of weeks, they may have it because they have a pathway and there's just such a long pathway to get there. So the two major ways, three major ways that people come to the United States are basically through business. Businesses support them. They want to have them a job through family. And that's the biggest category for, for Blacks uh, around the, the diaspora. They come in through the family connection. They have family that's already here. and They're sort of coming in through that way or through a humanitarian. So that would be asylum and refugee status. Those are the broader categories in which most people come. And then there's another category that's super important to Africans, which is diversity visa lottery, which Trump basically shut down, which is holding at bay for the last three years, all of these Africans who had an opportunity to come to the United States just on the base of sort of meeting a very basic qualification. And they basically won a lottery ticket and Trump decided we're not going to cash that ticket. And Biden is also doing the same thing, saying we're not going to honor you that chance to sort of come here just because we want to say the embassy can't get to you in time, which is really a function of choice. Right. And so in this space, I think it's important for this show when we start talking about immigration, we talk about the basic civics of immigration and that immigration is a federal policy that should and the rules come from Congress. So Congress is the body that sets up immigration. The president, just like with everything else, is the executive branch. They have discretion in the enforcement of the law set by Congress, but it is not their job to make immigration policy at all, right? Then we have the judiciary, and the judiciary is there for just like everyone else to make sure that these rules match our constitution and that something isn't, we're not excluding groups, 
for um, unbasis reasons or the other. So constantly in the United States, the problem, the biggest problem we face, and we think there is a line is, we all look to Joe Biden or to President Trump to solve immigration, to say it's their issue to solve, when their branch isn't the party that's controlling how that policy actually carries out, the numbers, how the process works, where the money comes from, all that comes from Congress. So this concept that Congress sits and says, you know, the borders are control and there's a line is a choice for Congress to make because they haven't done immigration policy in almost 25 years of good immigration policy to address our system. So basically, you have computers now that do everything. And the government and immigration is still working on a Tandy, which is a Radio Shack computer. And I don't even know if Radio Shack still exists anymore. But that tells you just how old it is to sort of get to the, to the system. So the concept of a line is this concept of order and law and order that the United States likes to use when they like to criminalize people to say, you're not doing something the right way because it is my choice that you didn't do it the right way. Not that there's a pathway to do it that way or another system. So I think we, we should be careful when we sort of talk about it to say there's a line. We should be careful about saying there's a right way because there are many ways and, and those ways are determined by the law. And in some cases, it can't be determined until it's before a judge. So we need to make sure that we have the judicial process to say this person may not have their documents today. They may have them tomorrow. You know, I that's really an, a really important lesson because we put a lot in terms of the executive branch, not only on the federal level, but on the state level, mm -hmm. right? We'll say the governor is not doing this, the president is not doing this, and taking the heat off the real entity. And as I say on the show, one of the things, one of the basic principles of organizing is knowing who the decision maker is. Mm -hmm. And I said it at the top of this series, the decision maker on immigration is Congress. It is not Joe Biden, right? So obviously he has a role to play in terms of the direction, working with Congress, you know, in terms of what he would like to see. Obviously, we've seen that in you know past decades, whether it be Reagan or others who had a very clear immigration policy that they wanted both the Justice Department and Congress to follow. But ultimately, the buck stops with Congress and really designing a quote pathway to citizenship that we talked to the representative about is creating pathways and I and I like that you laid out the different that there are different ways that there's not one line to join it's not like you pull the ticket at the counter and yeah. you're waiting for your you know your number to be called but that there are different in, in ways to enter also want to talk about because there's a recent court case <laughs> regarding due process for non-citizens and one of the things I think that's also a misconception for people is that they believe that because they're not citizens, they're not entitled to due process. They're not, they don't have specific rights because they are not citizens of this country. Can you talk a bit about the case, but then also that thought? Yeah. So I think the once again, you know, just being in a civics class, because I think it's important to go back to constitution. The constitution doesn't really speak to necessarily citizenship in some cases across the board with regards to the Bill of Rights, right? It speaks to these inalienable rights across the board. So inalienable rights are sort of these human rights. And so when we, as a country, decide to enforce our constitution, we are modeling for the rest of the world of how we should treat ourselves and how we treat other people. And within this country, we knew that women weren't included originally, African-Americans weren't included originally. I mean, actually, Native Americans weren't even included, right? I mean, we took the property for them and didn't really include them until some other time, many years later in, in June, to say that you're, you're actually citizens of the United States if you're born on the own property that we stole from you. So the concept has always been, in our 
practice it. There are certain things because we're the United States, we're just not going to do them. These are human rights. And we've joined all types of organization on a human platform saying these are human rights. And that's where asylum sort of falls into. After World War II, the world got together and said, we will never let this happen again. These are inalienable rights that belong to everyone. And we're going to do everything to make sure that we don't have this kind of desecration ever again. Right. So in these immigration proceedings, the main thing that I think the focus of it is when I sort of set out the branches of government before, so you always think of, you have the judiciary branch and you have the executive branch with an immigration enforcement is sort of the police. In immigration, the courts and the officers work for the same person, which is the Department of Justice. So therefore that division of due process doesn't happen in the system. The attorney general can overturn a decision from a judge at any time. Right. That's Jeff Sessions claim to fame. He did it many times to overwrite the decision of these judges so that the due process that we enjoy as citizens, where a judge makes an independent decision, doesn't happen in immigration. Also, in immigration, you don't have a right to counsel. Right. There's no apparently there's no funding for it. Our, our due process doesn't work that way, which sort of is the story of Guantanamo Bay. Right. So in a recent Supreme Court meeting on Monday, right, we're still digesting exactly what it means. The Supreme Court said that foreign nationals in this country, non-citizens, don't have the right to bail and due process in a court system. So therefore, they can be in prison forever without having the ability to know if they even committed a crime. The fact that they are here alone undocumented them falls them into this category where they're not entitled to bail and they're not entitled to see a timely sort of process. In no world to anyone should that seem okay. And the Ellen, people... I mean, wait, 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 because that's just contradictory <laughs> as we, as you just set up and said, and as we know that the Bill of Rights, these are things that we've said as a country that every human being, no matter the boundary of which they live in, that they are entitled to. I mean, that was what is staked out that people be outside and talk about our founders and like, mm -hmm. like they're talking about these are rights that you have as a person in this world, period. But at the same time, we're also arguing that they don't have the right. It doesn't make sense. Ellen. It doesn't make sense. And that's what we're saying. Make it make sense to us because one, we also have to understand, as I'm sure you've talked about the show, that prisons are a complex of finances for which people make tons of money, right? And specifically in immigration, there are tons of private prisons that make millions and millions of dollars, right? Off of having a required number to keep people in beds. And at the same time, most of those people who are denied bond or who are the scariest are people who are Muslim, who are black and brown like us. Right. They can't afford counsel that have a language barrier to maybe getting to the right person. Right. Who might not have understood something. So the process of having them have a due process, a concept is beyond me to think that we're going to pay close to one hundred dollars a day to actually retain somebody in a, in a prison for such a long time to profit on that. That's not the way our system should work. Yeah, I mean, like everything in this country, it's all tied to somebody making money, right? And we can see that for a number of complex, what we believe to be complex systems or what people tell us, oh, it's just, you know, you wouldn't understand there's so many things connected to this. 
you could see the direct correlation of that, not only in immigration, but also in policing, right? Also in, you know, law enforcement in general, that anything and everything that's tied to law enforcement, somebody is making billions of dollars off of it, whether that's prisons for people who are citizens, non-citizens, the process overall, the term, like law enforcement to me is just a big, you know, racket, <laughs> you know, financial racket for you know, people other than us to make, you know, billions of dollars off of it's a congressional choice, right? Because this is what I tell the people all the time. You can actually spend the money deporting those people to a place where they may die, or you could spend that same money that it costs to deport them to help them. And then maybe there'll be some way that they will return that to us as we've seen over and over again, or they'll make their country better by that sort of constitution. In this framework, I think it's important to know that Congress every year passes a budget. And in that budget, they allow for 400,000 deportations a year, right? There are over 11 million people here who are undocumented. So as we always say, your budget speaks to what your priorities are and what you expect to do. So you can't Congress claim that you are concerned about a large population of immigrants here and want to have them deported when you don't provide the funding to, have that, to make that happen. The only president that has ever passed the threshold of being above half is President Obama. He deported some 270,000 immigrants, right? And he didn't even make the 400,000 immigrants a year. So the concept that we know that people are here, right? This is where we come down to this fundamental right and, and notorious. And so in law, when someone does something notorious, for example, they're on your property, you see them there all the time and you don't remove them. At some point you sort of lose a claim to that, right? Because they're there, you know, they're there, they've been there. You could have done something about it. You didn't enforce it, right? In other practices of law, we call it a statute of limitations, where we say, after you've done something for so long or we didn't come after you for this crime, legally, it's been five years, we're not going to come back and get you. It's been seven years, we're not going to come back and get you because we saw it, we knew it was there, we just didn't do it. That doesn't exist in immigration. So no matter if you entered 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they knew you were here, you're paying taxes all the time, you're notoriously before them, they don't come and get you. And so... The, why this becomes important is during the Trump administration, Trump said, even though somebody's, I don't care if they've been here one day or 10 years, deport them. So under the Trump administration, that person who's been here for 20 years, paid taxes, has U.S. citizen kids, right? He went and deported them to break that family up, right? That's the kind of harm and the kind of villainization that comes to immigrants. And if we stop thinking about them as other people, right, in New York specifically, those aren't other people at our southern border, just like those aren't other people arriving at JFK right, to our airport. They're either visitors coming to see our, uh, go to our parks, see whatever, see the, the whatever building, right, in New York City, or hang out in Grand Central Station, or they are our cousins, our aunts, our uncles, our friends, our potential co-workers. I think the way we talk about people coming to this country needs to change, and the way we see them is villainization, because we can look at people in the airport and say, oh my God, those are arriving immigrants, we love them, right? They're refugees, they're coming from rich countries, oh, we love them. But then you look at people coming from other countries and you say they're threats, they're illegal or whatever, and that just doesn't make any sense. So as a legal format in a language system, nobody can be illegal anywhere until they're in the United States. And even then a judge needs to make that decision because of all the different ways that we talked about before. So when the news says there are 20,000 illegal people walking towards the border, that's not a concept. People are not illegal until they are in the United States without documentation. And then 8 USC 1158 passed by Congress said that asylum is a legal way to enter this country. So it has been a legal way to enter this country for years. So the fact that someone's able to 
buy a ticket, fly first class from China, come into the United States, stay three months, and then follow asylum. And then someone who has to walk a thousand miles, can't buy a ticket, walks to a border and applies for asylum and then gets the country and is denied, it's both asylum. Neither of those have more validity or more change in them. And it's actually until two years ago, the number of people filing asylum, there are more people from China that filed asylum than there were people from Mexico or the Central American countries individually, right? So when we think about Central America, it's the same issue that we have sometimes we think about Africa, we think about it as one place. Well, it's not one place, right? It's many different places and many different cultures and many different people, right? And we need to be able to distinguish among them when we follow the immigration code. The same thing with Africans. We need to be able to say, oh, a Nigerian is not the same thing as an Ethiopian, culturally different, educationally different. All those things are very different. So to understand the way that that lever sort of works, and the way we sort of push and pull. And for Black people, for me, and, and my, I'm the first Black president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, this was my year to say to Black people, immigration matters to Black people. And the reason it, ma it matters is because the largest population of Blacks in the United States pretty soon will be individuals from foreign countries. So it'll be foreign national immigrants that have come to this country, right? There will be people in this country who were not linked to slavery specifically in this country. But what I think is important about the station to make sure is, when somebody walks up to you on the street, they don't say if you're Jamaican or if you were born in Georgia before they discriminate against you or in the hiring practices. The way the country works, it gets you whether you were born here or not born here, it gets you because you were black, it gets you because you were Muslim. And so to make those distinctions is a problem for us. And when you understand just like all the other populations that are rising in the United States, the Latin population, right? That infuse of immigrants makes a difference. And if we want to continue, political power is sometimes about numbers and it's also about policy. So we need to make sure that we have those numbers there. As you see all the time in New York City, New York City is a prime example. This city has decided that people who are here who are undocumented, who've been paying taxes here, will now have a voice on their city table as with regards to voting. Right? That's something you don't see in many areas at all. They say, if you're, if you're not a citizen, you can't vote. And New York has said, if you're here, and you're doing stuff in New York, we want you to participate in our civic system because we want to hear from you and we want the dollars to be invested in making our community better. And when you look at Black diaspora across the board, many of the individuals who are in New York City that are Black, there are some that have come before, but many of those are people from Caribbean countries. That's what sort of built the New York culture of what it is today. You know, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, I want to follow up on some of the items that you mentioned, because I have questions about businesses and why we don't vilify businesses in the immigration process, as well as the last point you make about expanding and continuing to build our coalition, because the numbers, <laughs> you know, spell a, a story. And to me, it's, it, you know, it's, explicitly apparent why some people have fear, you know, about, uh, about those numbers, but we're going to take a break and we'll be right back with attorney, immigration attorney, Alan Orr here on Sunday civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the you think that you must do to start in this world like when the teacher schoolboy and schoolgirl come together who is the teacher i go let you know who is the teacher Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams. And at the front of the class, we have Alan Orr, immigration attorney extraordinaire, and also the president of the American 
Immigration Lawyers Association. I just be adding words. I don't know if that's the name of just adding extra words, but the lawyers who do immigration work, that's what it's president of, (laughs) Alan. So, you know, before the break, you know, I wanted to bring up this question. We talk about vilifying people and obviously we have vilified and created, we, when I talk about the American society, has vilified immigrants coming from the Southern border. Right. And I feel like that has it it has stuck even in, you know, people of color's brains of who immigrants are. The first image that you would think of would be someone coming from the southern border, what they look like, why they're coming, you know, things of that nature. And as you point out, even when faced with numbers in terms of, you know, how many immigrants we have in this country, where they come from, you know, that is still the image that's burned in our in our brains. And it's also how we talk about it in terms of media and the conversation in general. But one thing that has always stuck out for me is, you know, why we have the vilification of individuals. There's never been any vilification of the businesses and the companies that rely on the labor of those people, right? Because, you know, you need a social security number to get a job. (laughs) And so presumably, I would assume that the government knows of the businesses that are, you know, employing people with, you know, not proper documentation or, I mean, you could probably give me a week and I can identify a whole list of businesses just doing visual and conversations with people who work there. Why is there not this vilification of those businesses or a list, per se, of businesses that consistently exploit the labor of non-citizens? So that's so thank you for pulling up to my lane. So that's what I practice in is sort of helping clients with that. And when people think about the Southern border in this conversation, I also want to remember, this is the same tactics they used before with black people with saying ghettos, right? They, they call something, something, they give it characteristics. And then that characteristic follows it. And people just adopt it as being a bad place to live, a bad place to matriculate, a bad place for whatever. So that's very dangerous. So my job is to help companies understand and comply with immigration law, which is very complicated and doing a very simple form that used to say is an I-9 form that should take 10 minutes from the government, generally takes hours. And there's so many different forms of work authorization, it's hard to follow through. But that's not your question. Your question is about my clients who want to follow the rules. Your question is about businesses that make business decisions and say, I need to move things, right? Because, and there are no workers here. And that's what we see across the board right now in every state, there are not enough workers. They're not, I mean, they have, I see restaurants that don't open up the dining room because they can only do the drive-through in Tennessee and in Georgia because they don't have enough workers to actually be able to work both registers. And for safety reasons, they just decided to close their dining area. Way back in uh, 2010, we saw large enforcement areas in the meatpacking industry, basically in Idaho. They basically, I mean, Iowa, they came in and they just raided all, they raided them, right? So generally when you think of a raid, we're talking planes and locking people up, right? And so... Part of it comes back to what I said more about that sort of statute limitation, because they went and locked up those individuals who were working there, who were doing, who were making meat for us to buy at the store, getting paid low wages at the time, and basically just doing an American good thing. They arrested them. They had U.S. citizen kids that weren't picked up from school, left parents that needed to be taken care of that weren't taken care of, and locked them up and started putting them in the removal process. And what it also did was in those communities, it pulled away people who were going to the Dollar General or shopping at the store or being able to pay rent in that apartment building or what have you because they've been here so long. 
So part of what the government has done consistently, even Trump, who had a good enforcement of doing one-offs, they weren't really raiding a lot of companies in that sense of saying, we're going to go in and we're going to clean those companies out. Another reason that Trump probably wouldn't have done it is because he's also someone who is someone who has uh, won on doing this sort of thing. A lot of his hotels had a lot of people. I mean, he had two major suits where he got caught in by the Department of Justice of saying you have all these workers that you're paying under the wage level. So the issue becomes, is it better for us to go in? And, and then recently, right, we saw that again. It happened again in uh, Virginia recently, maybe three years ago. They went into the meatpacking situation and they found out that most of the people there weren't documented to work and it basically shut them down. And you saw the price of meat just rise, right? And then before you also saw that we started then importing a lot of vegetables from Mexico and they don't have the same FDA rules that we have. And so then all these salmonella breaks started happening out in all these different places because, you know, the same parameters weren't there and then it was brought in and then we had these problems. So as a national security matter, right now the government has decided that that's not a best use of their documents to go in and do that. The company is never the villain in the situation. They are the victim, right? You didn't get the immigration rights. What am I going to do? I got to hire somebody, right? And that's how we always see companies in these situations. Think of the bailout for the banks. They, you know, although they made those decisions, it wasn't their choices. They deserved, you know, they got to exist, right? Too big to fail. So immigration follows that same policy of when it goes up against individuals, big individuals who have benefited from it, meatpacking companies, farming, a lot of trucking, most of the construction, right? One-off daycare in major areas, right now taking care of the elderly. The United States has said, we know that they're there, and that's part of my issue. We know that they're there, but it's not smart for us to go do that. One, for a political reason, two, for civics reason, and three, it's just going to hurt the economy even more, right? There's two articles out today that said if we were able to bring the migrants in, if we were able to let those people from the from the southern border just come in and do what they want to do and work for us and fill some of these jobs, then it would help the inflation because things would come down because people were able to build houses. They would have workers in these different situations. So we're basically hurting ourselves in that concept of saying that there's a space. So companies do get punished. And the way that companies are getting punished right now under uh, General Clark, who has done an excellent job over this employee rights division, is companies that are discriminating against immigrants have, have now had a weekly enforcement against them. People are asking for extra documents because you're Black or you speak a different language. People are saying, I got to see your green card, which isn't allowed in the rules. People are discriminating against people who are saying we're going to hire immigrants over Americans. People are saying we're going to hire Americans over immigrants. This Justice Department better than any Justice Department in the history of my time being a lawyer since 1998. I've never seen a Justice Department come out so strong to make sure and protect workers and say, listen, if they're documented to work, they get to work. You don't get to ask them extra questions. And you don't get to say, I mean, that was the whole Facebook scandal that happened a while ago that Facebook had this uh, preference to hire foreign nationals over American workers. And so you see that ramming up right now. But these large worksite enforcement areas that you think that would happen at construction sites, it's not going to happen because we benefit from it. And that's the question is, if we're benefiting from all these individuals, then why can't we turn around and provide a benefit to them as well? That's something that I always talk about at the southern border issue. All of those border towns benefit from immigration. They benefit from the truckers that are coming in. They benefit from all of that stuff coming in. But they want to say they want to take the good stuff, but they don't want to deal with the repercussions of, of the people who they could also help with that benefit and that wealth that they're making at the southern border. And they also can exploit them, right? Because there's also then the fear of, you know, <laughs> uh, right. There, there, There's the 
fear that, well, if you're asking for too much, if you're asking for breaks, if you're asking for better work conditions, well, we can just call it immigration and then just bring in some new people, right, to replace you. So you will take this $4 an hour and love it. Right, <laughs> with the construction happened last week. The construction company, the construction. You know company what I mean? We needed more money. They called immigration on them, and now this Department of Justice has stepped in and said, "No, we're not. That's not how this is going to play." Exactly, and you know, and so you would think that, as you mentioned, that all of these companies that benefit, we don't see them coming to the White House or coming to Congress and saying, "This is why this is better for our economy. Why a comprehensive immigration policy is better for our economy." We don't see them standing up for, you know, the workers and their families are saying, "You doing these raids?" You know, like we don't see that, right? Like we don't see them as a player in that standpoint. What it becomes is again, it's another form of exploitation. Right. Yeah. And particularly back for door, people. Right? Backdoor calls to congressional people to say, we don't want to fund that. We don't want to support that. We're right. Sort of follow up with that. Have some cases that have been pending for three years just because the government has made it a non-priority. So, but you yeah. will see those tech companies for the Indian nationals that those tech companies who kids are aging out, they recently have come out to say, right, because they're making the, the smartest phone. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not one to good immigrant, bad immigrant. I don't have that nature about me. There is, there each immigrant category has a different level of discrimination and Chinese nationals and Indian nationals have a level of discrimination from 1965 where we basically put limits on countries and they have to wait 10 years where if you came in from France, you have to wait one year. I see that. I, that's a problem right. for us to say we don't see nationality, but we're going to hold you back for years based on nationality. All those things could be addressed by Congress because Congress can just increase the numbers or not count the children with regards to the number of visas they give every year. So there's a certain allotment of visas that we give out in each of the categories that I discussed earlier. Um, and if you, and each of that allotment, each country is given a different allotment, which was smart in some ways, what they were trying to solve for in 65 by doing this sort of quota system was to stop, was the control, the influx of one country basically saying coming over here and then, you know, the concept of us becoming another country, that concept that is primal in people to think of it as replacement, but we really don't think about that in our neighborhoods. I mean, I think Black people have experienced it, gay people have experienced it, where neighborhoods change and they grow and they adapt to different levels. The same thing happens in immigration. A larger influx of people may change the dynamics of that neighborhood to what it was before, but it's still, in a sense, if you're doing the civics, it's still your neighborhood, right? It's still yeah. what, fundamentally, if you're participating in the system, you're making these decisions along with other individuals to do what's right for your community. Yeah. Well, you know, the other exploita exploitation conversation in terms of our politics happens, particularly when you marry the immigration exploitation with also unemployment numbers of African-Americans and folks, right? So you have higher unemployment in communities. And so then it's the, the conversation of they're taking your jobs, right? And it's a way to pit particularly of target is black men, mm -hmm. right? Of telling black men, well, the reason why you can't find a job or the reason why you've been unemployed for the last five years is because of the Mexicans, because of folks coming over from Guatemala and things like that. And so it becomes internalized, right? As the reason why we have high unemployment is because they'd rather give jobs to immigrants than to people who've been here. I think that also feeds into this moment that we're having with like the foundational black people, <laughs> you know, piece or whatever, is that people are focused too much on immigrants and not on the black people here. Can you I mean, I have a view. <laughs> yeah, so there's a famous, there's a, there's a famous photo I like to talk about, and it's uh, 
of white man with a plate of cookies of like 20 cookies. And then there is on one side, uh, a lighter skinned guy that has a cookie. And then on the other side, a darker skinned guy that doesn't have a cookie. And the guy with the 20 cookies points at the lighter skinned guy and says, he has your cookie when he in fact has all the cookies. And that's the way to illustrate in this world because there are there is not a lump of jobs. So that's a fallacy that there's a lump of jobs because create jobs all the time, they change, technology changes, advancement changes. And so in the immigration context, I have a couple of responses for you that I always talk about with black people because I think it's super important that they hear that mantra and they just say it. So if you're not a neuroscientist, that Indian national who is a neuroscientist didn't take your job, right? So if you don't do neuroscience, you don't have the degree, they didn't take your job. That's sort of an easy off ramp. In Georgia, for farming, there was a farm that gave out free cell phones and allowed people to work all, you know, you, we drive you, blah, blah, blah. And they hired some Americans and they didn't last a full day. They said, you know, that's backbreaking work. That work is beneath me as an American, right? I don't, I'm not doing that work, right? We don't do that work anymore because people feel in the United States, we've been told that people that work with their hands aren't as valid or as important as people who are doctors and lawyers. And that's a lie, right? Because if you, anybody, if you ever called a plumber, or an electrician, or ever needed your house built, ever needed any type of technical work done, people who use their hands are just as important as people who use their minds for the economy. So that's just a fiction that exists that we need to dissolve ourselves of. Racism is real. And the person who was hiring and making that decision was never gonna hire you in the first place. And we need to be able to address that and say, in some cases, which you've seen mainly in the black Caribbean, institution. You see those individuals move to this country and not look for a job, but make a job for themselves. Make a beautician shop, make a barber shop, make a restaurant, make a delivery shop, make a grocery store in their neighborhood so that they realize rather than say, I want to work for someone outside of me who's going to control those things, I'm going to build for myself and then I'm going to make these decisions for individuals underneath me. Right. And you also see it also in the Asian American community. Right. They own their shops. They have people who work there. They make those decisions for small businesses. That kind of concept of ownership is something that I think, you know, African-Americans also should think about that racism is a problem. And sometimes the very concept of saying I need to work for somebody may be the issue that is preventing you from having that space. The other thing structurally is to say that the job at the Burger King is relegated to your community. Where the hell is that written? I mean, I'm offended when people say that Burger King job are your jobs for your people. Why is that? Who are you to tell educated people who all went to the same schools, that black people are supposed to have these fast food jobs and you were supposed to be somewhere else. So that concept is odd as a concept to me, that there are jobs that are relegated to different communities because we don't have a caste system in this country where people have to do exactly what their parents did or exactly what the concept of where they need to belong in that space. So those are just problematic issues that we can that are more complex than the immigration concept itself, right? Because there's structurally racism issue, there are educational challenges that exist. There is money that has come from immigrant visas for STEM that goes back to HBCUs to help HBCUs people catch up. But the concept of that is a little bit like you're always running behind, right? American has always been running behind in that tech industry that we saw countries like China, Nigeria, and India focus on, right? They were already focusing on that technologies and those chips. That's why we don't have enough chips here because we don't make them here because we don't know how to make them here because we didn't think that that was important enough to do, but that's all China in Nigeria and India thought was important to do. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams. And at the front of the class, we have Alan Oren. So as we know, the decision maker here on these issues is Congress, mm-hmm. right? What are, just as we wrap up, because I like to give people homework, I like mm-hmm. to give people actionable steps. It's difficult to tell somebody on the street, this is what you need to do about immigration, Mm -hmm. right? Talking to activists, whether they've been DACA activists, which, you know, the 10-year anniversary also just passed this week. We're talking about humanitarian people seeking asylum. And, you know, we can have a whole nother conversation on terms of why people are seeking asylum for their countries. And perhaps maybe America should be a better neighbor and a better joint. It's like, how can we improve conditions in your country, which we probably contributed to (laughs) so that there aren't more people fleeing and seeking asylum, right? Like there are things that we've done as a country in terms of economic policy, trade policy, arms dealing, all of those kinds of things that actually contribute to the instability of certain countries Mm -hmm. as to the reason why people are coming here seeking asylum in the first Mm -hmm. place. We'll put that, we'll put that aside. Yes. So I think William Barr has opened a space for me to say something that I think is a legal standard now. So to cut the BS, right? We are able to make choices that benefit the American people when we don't villainize people. And we see that over and over again. And our constitution sets out this parameter where we're not looking at race, creed, and sex to make decisions. So when we have a president that stands in a room and says, I'm gonna give so many refugees from a certain country, that's a problem. We just take refugees. We don't decide on nationality. That's not how the rules are sort of written. But the concept for me in, in the civic action is to talk to your congressional person about what their immigration policies are and to see if they believe treating someone from the Ukraine is different than treating someone from Haiti. And if they thought it was okay that if someone from the Ukraine flew to the southern border and there were Mexican national, Honduras nationals and um at the border, did they think it was okay for the Ukrainians to walk over them to get into the country, to jump the queue? And why are there two sets of rules? So it's something about fairness. And I will always say, I will never let the good stop the perfect. And in this class, DACA is the easiest thing to pass because there really is no sort of level of intent to break or violate rules for that class of individuals. They're basically victims of decisions that their parents made in the system and they've been here and they've benefited us for almost 10 years and we've done nothing about it. That's a low hanging fruit to sort of change. To increase the numbers, the concept that the United States is full for people who are New York and San Francisco and big cities, LA is something, but if you're not in those cities, the United States ain't full. There's so much land and so much opportunity for us to build forward on that sort of level. And so for me, I would say, talk to your communities because I think that's where it starts to say, what does my community need? And most of the Southern states needs workers. So there is no worker visa. So if I wanted to come over and do field work, you know, there's these seasonal visas. There's so many allotments and you see 30,000 of them issued every four or four months because we don't have enough of them. Why isn't there a greater category for that? Right. Why is there not a greater charge for that? Uh, the black people that are hanging out, those visa lottery winners, that's a choice that the, that the Biden administration could sort of change, just like they decided to end Title 42. So for me, the work would be finding out where your congressional person stands on immigration, almost 80% of them don't have a concept of what immigration is outside of the southern border, and that's such a small part of immigration. There are over 200 ports of entry to this United States, and they are focusing on 10 of them because they think they give them a benefit. The second thing that I suggest that we do is to stop talking about the southern border as a problem. It's not a problem. It's an opportunity, right? 
Just like when you go to New York City and New York City is filled with millions of people, it was always been an opportunity. So that's an opportunity to sort of think like we did with uh, drugs or with alcohol by limiting what it was for a time. Prohibition has never worked, right? This sort of prison lock them up has never worked. Why in the world do we lock people up who are coming here for safety? Help. Why is the Supreme Court even thinking about that right now in the sort of uh, PPP Remain in Mexico case? So those are some of the issues. So I think part of it is to educate ourselves on education, on immigration. Know who the immigrants are in your community. And there is a on the American Immigration Council, you can go in and put in your state and it will tell you how many people in your community are immigrants, what they contributed to your community in tax dollars, how many of them lived in mixed families where someone is undocumented, someone's documented, and we're just saying, you can't, once again, you can't marry who you love because there's this fiction that this person needs to do something extra just to become documented in this country. Understand those things and those levers. And then the second thing is, it is really important to have empathy. I think the concept in America, one of the problems we have in building our, our system and that uh, I've learned over and over again is that it is our humanity that will save us over the rules and the regulations. We need to be able to see people who are just like us in their situation and recognize that, but, but for the grace of God could be us. Well, Alan, thank you so very much for coming to the front of the class. It was very, very educational. <laughs> and I hope that people get a lot out of today's discussion and ask the question, you know, a couple of episodes ago, I told people that they should be grading their congressional members or their elected officials. And also we believe here, how can somebody represent you if you're not talking to them on a regular basis? So another question that you can ask is what is your priority as it pertains to comprehensive immigration reform? What are, you know, your values on these issues in order to, so if you're asking candidates that question to help you in terms of who you're voting for, who you're supporting to align your vote with someone who aligns the best with you and your vision in terms of immigration reform in this country. Thank you so much for that wealth of information. I really appreciate it. And you're welcome back anytime. Thank you for having me. Talk really about that. anything else. Yeah. Thank you so very much. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Oh.